Hi and welcome to episode three of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. So here today with me is Mike T. Nelson. Hi, Mike. Hey, guys. Hey, how you doing? Um, so Good. Um, I actually saw you only a couple of days ago at the ISSN uh, annual conference, and uh, it was a pleasure to meet you in person, of course. I know we've communicated um, a little bit, and I uh, really enjoyed your um you know, your uh, uh, counterpoint um, uh, uh, discussion that you had with Abby Smith, Ryan, uh, Lane Norton, and I can never pronounce the guy's name, but it was is Agostini, is that right? Um, Agostino. Yeah, okay, I was, I yeah. was close enough. Uh, Very on, close, Tom. Uh, yeah, good. <laughs> uh, on the topic of um, metabolic adaptation, which uh, actually I'd like to delve into that a little bit because it is related to the main topic of the day, which is metabolic flexibility, which of course um, you have a great deal of expertise in, and uh, uh, I was sort of like a uh, uh, sort of a teenager at a rock star conference when I met you, because <laughs> uh, it is an area that I'm looking at in my own doctoral studies. So um, uh, feel free to help me at, at any point along this. Yeah, of course. Uh, so let's let's just get into this a little bit, and we'll sort of wing it as we go, but. Um, I think, you know, some people may have heard the term metabolic flexibility. I know that they might have an idea what it means. It doesn't mean it is it is a term that that did appear a bit more maybe 10 years ago and it's coming back on the scene. But let's just start off with an explanation of what metabolic flexibility is. Sure. So how I think of it is that just like how your body for performance should be flexible, um, in theory, your metabolism should also be flexible. So when we look at metabolism for this discussion, we can expand it from there, but we're primarily just looking at the two main fuel sources, which are going to be fats and carbohydrates. And metabolic flexibility is how your body switches back and forth between using carbohydrates and then also using fats. So a lot of times how even research is presented it looks only at fat metabolism, fatty acid oxidation, or carbohydrate metabolism. And metabolic flexibility is a little bit more wider than that. So how you're able to switch back and forth from using carbs to fats, and also how, I would say, how far you can. So how much and how well can you use carbohydrates? How well can you use fats? And at what rate can you move back and forth between those two fuel sources? Yeah, and so that was great, perfect spot on there. So the 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 thing that that listeners who I know uh, I know some of them are students of mine even, uh, but I know there's a lot of uh, there's a wide variety of listeners uh, that we have on this call. Some of which are scientists, even uh, uh, some of a, a sort of a super interested members of the public. But those that are aware um, of this idea of how the body uses fuel or substrates at rest or at exercise will no doubt have come across this whole sort of Brooks crossover concept mm -hmm. where uh, we're taught in the textbooks that at low intensities of exercise and even hopefully at rest we're using a greater proportion uh, almost purely fat as a fuel um, but of course as intensity increases um, you get to a point where the contribution of, of uh, carbohydrates or glucose, if you like, um, actually exceeds that of fat. Um, but of course, that isn't necessarily the case either in a healthy person or an unhealthy person, is it? 
Yeah, so even that concept, right? So you're exactly right. So the crossover theory, which is primarily Brooks and Mercer in like the early 90s, um, you explained it exactly correct. But we also have to remember that that data is also an average and a mean. And what you'll find in the body, just like your metabolism, just like any other system, is a fair amount of plasticity. So it can actually change. Mm. So one of the things I saw when I did a lot of metabolic heart work in the lab, you've probably seen this too, is that in some athletes who used a lot of carbohydrates who are, you know, pretty good average, maybe even a little bit, you know, pretty good athlete, that the crossover period actually almost like completely disappeared, meaning that their body was very, very tuned to running almost exclusively on carbohydrates. So while they did have some change in percentage of fuels, it wasn't as wide a difference. And then also I had one person come into the lab in particular that I remember. We were just doing just standard exercise tests that it pretty starts off very mellow, moderate rate after an overnight fast. So she comes in, have her do the treadmill test, and we can look at the RER or the RQ, which is the number that tells us the percentage of fats versus carbs. So 0.7 means that you're pretty much using 100% fats. Uh, 1.0 or greater is 100% carbohydrates. And so at rest, right, if we look at the crossover theory, you know, she should be pretty low, right? You know, 0.8, 0.77, you know, somewhere around there or so. And she was right about like, I think, 0.9, 0.92, which means that the halfway point is 0.85, right? So at that point, you should be using 50% fat, 50% carbohydrates. And she was actually already exceeding that at a very, very low intensity. And so I thought, well, you know, she just forgot. You know, she ate breakfast, you know, or something like that or whatever. So I said, do you mind, you know, next week coming in the lab, we'll repeat, we'll do the same thing again. She's like, yeah, that's cool. Comes in, exact same thing again. And, you know, she wasn't super active, you know, was moderately overweight. So it looks like for whatever reason, her body is primarily using more glucose, at least during that test, not using as much fats. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, I, I had the same epiphany myself. I uh, 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 use a metabolic cart every day in my practice. And uh, in, yeah. fact, in fact, I uh, I got into that whole thing thanks to a chap that we both know, Bob Sibaha, which we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about some of his uh, ideas and, and the metabolic efficiency um, sort of idea that uh, that that uh, he at least got me into, um, but on a daily basis, I'm doing uh, resting metabolic rate tests, and I'm doing various you know performance tests, whether it's just standard VO2 maxes or even fat max assessments. And um, it wasn't until I upgraded to uh, this isn't even that long ago, I upgraded to a full a full metabolic cart system. Uh, a cortex metalizer system where I was able to do full gas exchange um, and actually get the proper RQ and RER um, mm -hmm. throughout the assessments. And, and I was initially shocked because I literally my first ever person I did this on who was not an athlete, just a regular, uh, a regular victim that I had come into the clinic um, and just on a resting um, RMR assessment, um, it gives me a readout, of course, on the substrate utilization. So, of course, I'm seeing uh, how much fat and carbohydrates and protein uh, as an estimation there. But the, the amount of fat and carbs that they were going through just sitting there for, you know, 20 minutes. And we'd done the full 
Um, Prep had them fast, do an overnight fast. They hadn't eaten anything. There was nothing, just, yep. and nothing wrong. And um, they, they, uh, you know, they were burning almost exclusively uh, carbohydrates, even at rest. Um, so of course, I, I thought there's got to be something not right here. So again, I, <laughs> I put them for a basic exercise protocol, nothing crazy, uh, a nice ramped protocol. Um, didn't take them to max. It, you know, it was it was almost a fat max type assessment. And again, um, whilst every now and then there was a little bit of fat being used, it was predominantly uh, carbohydrates being used as as a fuel. And I, I, you know, I initially had to call the manufacturers and say there's got to be something wrong with the machine because this is <laughs> not, this can't be right. Surely they would be using fat. And of course, that opened up my mind to the fact that, as you've just said, hang on. What I'm seeing in the textbook is merely the mean of what the researchers are seeing. And, of course, that's what we do as scientists. We publish means. Yep. You start looking at the data, which I did, and you start seeing all these outliers, uh, all these, you know, these data points. And there are loads of people that, um, that actually don't oxidize their fuels in the way in which it's presented, which, of course, is, is mind-blowing. And... Um, and that's how I actually came into your work and, and various other other things. So just to clarify to the listener what it is I'm even talking about here. I mean, what you know, why why is that even happening? Why would someone at rest just be burning carbohydrates as a fuel? Yeah, my guess is that it's just an adaptation, right? So the amazing part about the body is it can adapt, you know, to various degrees to almost, you know, whatever we do. So the fact that you can drink a large 7-Eleven Slurpee with no ice and still function, you could do that probably multiple times a day for weeks on end. And it's not the greatest for performance. You're going to have problems you know, later at some point. But you, you, know, you can still survive. You can probably make it to work, do your job, that type of thing. You know, if I put sugar in the gas tank in my car, I'm probably not going to make it around the block, right? So the fact that we can handle things that may have long-term uh, repercussions, but in the acute sense, we can actually handle them pretty good. So I think what's going on is if you look at insulin, insulin is, I think, better described as a, a fuel selector switch, which I think I stole from Jeff Bullock. Um, so higher levels of insulin push the body to use more carbohydrates. Lower levels of insulin push the body to use more fatty acids. So if we're eating a lot, we're not exercising, we're eating a lot of you know things that increase insulin, it's to the body's advantage to use more carbohydrates. So if we go all the way back, I think our physiology is very much programmed for survival, whether you use evolutionary biology or ancestral health or whatever term you want to associate with it, the body's going to do everything it possibly can in order to survive. So if we take in a large 7-Eleven Slurpee or a ton of carbohydrates, we have to get that carbohydrate out of the blood. Because very, very high levels of glucose become toxic and potentially can kill us, right? That doesn't happen in healthy people because of the counter-regulation. But in disease populations like you know, diabetics, they can definitely have those issues. So the body says, hey, i got to get all these carbohydrates out of the blood as fast as possible. I don't care where I put them. If I put them off in the liver, if I stuff them in muscle, I convert them to fat, whatever, i got to get them out of there. And if I can use more of those carbohydrates just at rest, my guess is that's probably an acute adaptation to trying to deal with those high glucose loads 
especially in the face of tissue that's probably very insensitive to trying to use it too. Sure. So I, I guess, and this obviously, uh, I, I know it isn't the case because I've looked into it now, but I mean, we're not just talking about insulin here. And of course, we can expand yep. um, upon that. But of course, insulin is a popular topic. And, and I think, it, I mean, it won't surprise many of our listeners, but it will surprise some to know that, that insulin is a switch for substrate uh, usage. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I'm not, I don't want anyone to think that I'm some kind of uh, uh, everyone should go keto or, uh, you know, everybody should go low carb. I'm very much about uh, eating the right foods at the right times for, you know, in, in the context of what we're trying mm -hmm. to do. So I'm a I'm an eat low and eat high carb sort of guy. It just depends how you periodize it. But yep. if but if we want to if we want to switch on the, the sort of the 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 the, the, the the, the physiology, the biological mechanisms within the body to be optimal for fat burning. We're not necessarily talking about good for performance or anything, but just for fat burning, of course, we're we're looking at the role that that our diet, our lifestyle, and our training can have on insulin. I mean, is that is that a fair point? Yeah, no, I would definitely agree. So, in an acute setting. Right, so you would do everything you can to make your body more sensitive to insulin, right? So you don't have to secrete as much to get the same job done. If you don't eat as much, right, or you eat lower carbohydrates, potentially lower some types of proteins, they have less of an insulin release, so you have less insulin release, and acutely, your body will use more fats. The, the question where everyone gets completely hung up and goes off the rails and I get all sorts of fun hate mail <laughs> is that they're saying that, well, you're saying that, you know, that's best for body composition over the long term, that I have to go out and just do, you know, low intensity, steady state cardio. I should never lift or do anything else. And that's not the case. I'm just saying that in an acute sense, if we went into your lab or someone's lab, we hooked you up and we measured exactly what fuel your body is using the lower we can push insulin, right, which is why people do overnight fast, the more it'll push your body to use more fats as their fuel source. It's a different question to ask, is that the best thing for long-term body composition, which is slightly different discussion. But Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And, of course, everyone's in a different situation, aren't they? And, of course, not everyone has impaired metabolic metabolic Correct. flexibility and uh I, you know the i mean the ultimate goal here is to be able to be most excellent at switching between the substrates and being damn good at burning fats when you need to and damn good at burning carbs when you need to yes uh, and the beauty um of having the lab kit like i'm i'm super lucky to have the kit in my my clinic um is you can read that into the individual which of course you know, we can't just make assumptions by just because someone's overweight does not necessarily mean that they're metabolically impaired, although it is possibly quite, quite likely. Um, but if we if we have impaired metabolic flexibility and, and we have poor glycemic control, what, what I mean, what are the consequences of that in, in our? Not, I'm not talking performance here, but I mean, it, from a health perspective, which is more important, really, you know, mm -hmm. what, what's what's the risk uh, from a health perspective here? Sure. So I always like to look at the pathology of different diseases then, right? So if you've taken any pathology classes, which I'm sure you have, the short version is that everything you learned in anatomy and physiology about how the body functions well, 
at some point something can go awry and screw that up and it's a pathology and we've got a little cool name we, we stuff onto it. Um, so the main one is type 2 diabetes and in that case if you, if you took just a very simple definition of what type 2 diabetes is you would say that it's a very hard time using carbohydrates as fuel. Right? You can get into whole insulin dysregulation and all that other kind of stuff. But in general, very hard time using carbohydrates. Um, however, as the disease progresses, what you also see is that the body has a harder time using fats as a fuel source also. Um, that can be from changes in the muscle tissue due to release of you know, ceramides, decrease in insulin sensitivity, all sorts of stuff. But if you were to look at it on a spectrum, let's say the right-hand side of your spectrum is the body's full ability to use carbohydrates. The left-hand side of the spectrum is its full ability to use fat. Type 2 diabetics actually get squished as the disease progresses from both sides of the spectrum. Mm. So in essence, they become metabolically inflexible. They initially have a harder time using carbohydrates, and then over time, they have a harder time using fat. So if we only look at just insulin, right? So harder time using carbs, the body goes, oh crap, I need to get carbohydrates out of the bloodstream. Because if I don't, it's toxic and I'll die. That's very, very bad. And the tissue is less sensitive to insulin. So it goes, oh, no problem. I'll just put out more insulin, right? To try to get that same effect, I'll just keep putting out more and more and more insulin. And as you know, at some point, pancreas can't do it anymore and they have to be put on injections of insulin. But in that process, their basal level of insulin becomes higher and higher and higher. As insulin becomes higher, it makes it harder for the body to then use fats as a fuel source. So type 2 diabetics get, in essence, become metabolically inflexible. They have a loss in carbohydrate metabolism. They actually have a loss in the use of fatty acids, too, at the same time. Yeah, no, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this has profound impact to uh you know what is pretty much a world sort of pandemic of a problem now isn't it so, mm -hmm. so i mean let's let because we could talk for hours about the science behind this i i think listeners get an idea here that you know there's a there's a metabolic flexibility and there's a metabolic inflexibility issue i think it's worth pointing out that this is something that happens at the individual cell level um and of course, since we've got trillions of cells in our body, it, you know, it, it can become a an interesting issue once you multiply it a few trillion times. Sure. Uh, but um, I mean, what you know, what are the things that I mean, you know, why why does one become metabolically inflexible? Because I would imagine, um, it, it, you know, with the exception of potentially some extremely rare conditions that we either do or don't know about at this time, it's not something that 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 is normal, quote-unquote. So why, why does one even become metabolically inflexible? My guess is that it's just an adaptation to what you're doing in terms of, you know, higher amounts of carbohydrates, decreased, you know, activity, that type of thing. You know, that your body, in an acute sense, so on a day-to-day -day sense, it's doing everything it can, you know, to handle that, you know, high amount of glucose, especially in the face of people who don't move much, right? So you've got not only decreased uh, insulin sensitivity of the muscle, the liver, potentially the fat cell, you've got uh, decreased upregulation or translocation of GLUT4, different transmitters or transporters, I should say. And 
all those things, your body is trying to handle that glucose load as best that it can. But unfortunately, that leads to um, longer changes, right? So acutely, if it has to put out more insulin to get that you know glucose out of the bloodstream so you don't die, that's actually good. The downside is, okay, now you're putting out more and more and more insulin, which is straining the pancreas. So there's costs long-term associated with doing those acute things to keep you functioning day to day. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating area, and of course, it makes you—you know—you, you, you, I mean, we think very much about the nutritional influences on on these conditions and and so on. But of course, one has to think also that there is clearly a role for exercise, uh, and more and more data is showing that things like um, metabolic diseases, like diabetes, of course, whilst it's commonly treated primarily via diet and uh, various medications um, exercise itself could well be one of the best therapies for this uh, condition would you agree with that oh totally yeah so at a very simplistic level and, and, and when I try to teach my students I they get so tired of me like drawing pictures on the board <laughs> and hammering this into them old it's, school you're old school Mike yeah, yeah I'm like old school man yeah um, when you look at it even when it's described our mental models of how we think of things tend to become very static and very fixed. And um, one of my PhD co-advisors was very good about presenting what he called mental models and that it's all differing rates of flow, right? So imagine if I'm going to try to fill my bathtub, right? I've got a rate from the faucet coming on and I can control the level in the bathtub by <clears throat> how much water I turn on and by how much I let out of the bathtub, right? If I completely plug the drain, turn the faucet on full, I'm going to fill it faster. And in a similar way, you can think about the body, that how much glucose coming in, it's kind of like the faucet, the level is just the bloodstream, and the sink, which they've actually referred to this in the literature, is actually the muscle, so or other cells that are using the glucose. And if we want to keep the level at a relatively low level, I can either change the rate that's coming in or I can make a much bigger drain, right? I can let a lot more of it out and use it and I could probably get away with a lot more coming in, right? So if you have more of an elite athlete or someone who does a lot of exercise, can they get away with using a lot more carbohydrates and not having an issue? In general, yes. Mm. If you have the average, unfortunately, American who doesn't exercise a lot, is having a ton of carbohydrates into that system the best thing? Not so much, right? Because their drain's much smaller. They're just not using as much of it. And what you see is that that level then tends to creep up and causes all sorts of other issues. So it's actually differing rates of flow that account for those differences. So they're all moving at the same time. It's just how much they're moving and at what rate makes a big difference. Yeah. Okay, great. So I mean, so so we know that impaired metabolic flexibility pretty much begins with an inability to increase fat oxidation in response to fasting, diet, or exercise. Clearly, there's a sort of a trio there. And um, um, I mean, I read somewhere that this could well be uh, heritable um, because mm -hmm. of the mitochondrial dysfunction side of this. Um, and obviously, from this, we're we're, we're going to get some sort of insulin. 
um, resistance, which um, of course causes an inability to increase glucose oxidation in response to the diet itself, and that's obviously when we become metabolically inflexible. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, people are going to think, well, you know, is this is this an issue because the brain's broken or? You know, is there a lip? Because there's obviously a lot of things involved here. Is it a damaged liver? Uh, is, there, is there a faulty thyroid? Um, you know, is this just a, and is this just happening at the individual cellular level? I mean, what what do you think about that? Uh, could be all the above. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, we don't know, really, do we? We don't know. No. I mean, there's some fascinating new stuff on regulation of appetite control. Um, in the brain, whether it's from sleep, exercise, you know, what we eat, you know, so obviously the brain's probably the master controller of, of all that, but you can also have, you know, changes in the liver, you can have changes in the fat cell, so a very cool study that was done on mice, so yeah. I always thought for, for body composition, okay, we can just figure out a way to prevent that darn glucose from getting converted off into fat and stored in the fat cell, hey, we'll have, you know, a lot leaner people. Sure. And so they did a mouse study a couple of years ago where they did that with a knockout mouse, so genetically modified mouse. And the short version of all the ramblings is that in the mouse where they prevented more glucose from getting converted off and stored in the fat cell, that that actually, in essence, backed up into the liver and the triglycerides went sky high. So it doesn't appear that that, at least in a mouse model, is a good idea. Yeah. So what would you do instead? I actually think that fatty acid oxidation is probably the rate-limiting step in a lot of it, mm. right? So if you look at lipolysis, so the ability to, to cleave fats, to get them off to be used as fuel, most of the research shows that that's probably not the rate-limiting step, right? You will, in essence, cleave off and have more fat in the blood than you can burn during exercise. It seems that the fatty acid oxidation is probably more the limiting factor. So if you go back to the mouse model, I think by allowing blood glucose to get out of the bloodstream and to even if it's converted off into fat, right, because that'll lower your glucose load in the blood, mm. and then on the opposite end, increase the rate of fatty acid oxidation so that you have less that gets stored in the fat cell. In essence, you sped the rate of flow through the fat cell. So you're converting more off into it, but you're using more on the other end. Right, so it's back to like making a bigger drain. So I, I think in the future we'll find that that's probably one of the more rate limiting steps, sure. which probably explains why exercise is also so beneficial. Yeah. So well, let's talk. I mean, since exercise, you know, we need to. It's not just what we're seeing in the lab. We need to think about how to, how to try and fix this. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we look. We know we know nutrition's. It's got obvious areas there, and I don't think we're at a point where we can start throwing in supplement therapies uh, we really don't know what they would do and it wouldn't be particularly influential as compared to the basic diet and of course with there we're talking about being super careful with uh, high glycemic foods and sugars and and uh, you know uh, and then potentially obviously what they call bad fats and all the things that can affect mm -hmm. insulin health so you know there's that side of it so when it comes to exercise are we talking just cardio are we talking high intensity interval training are we talking low you know low low interval low uh, low intensity steady state uh we're we talking resistance training what i mean what do you reckon about exercise 
and what kind of exercise? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, if I were to pick, I'd say probably all of the above. Mm. But if I were to put them in an order of priority, because, you know, and I do this for my clients, right? Because people come to me and I'm sure they come to you and be like, hey, man, I've only got, you know, three days a week. That's all I can do for exercise. You know, what is the most beneficial I can do for health, body composition, fat loss, that type of thing, right? Because health is super important, but I mean, how many people have ever emailed you unless they have a disease and said, yeah, I'm healthy. I just want to stay healthy. <laughs> Sadly, it's, yeah. it's not very many, right? No. It's, it's normally something else. Um, so with that, I would say that resistance training is probably number one. So not only do you increase strength, uh, you can increase muscle mass. You actually acutely increase fuel switching. So when you're lifting, right, so you go to the gym on Monday, you're doing your, your dude bra bench day or whatever you're doing or I don't know whatever term you guys have over there for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're doing your three sets of 10. So when you're doing the bench press, your body's primarily using, you know, the basically the ATP route, right, creatine phosphagen, and then primarily glycolysis, right, so the use of carbohydrates. Not much fat really being used in that process, especially if your exercise set only lasts, let's say, 30 seconds, right? Yeah. But during that rest period, so now you rest, let's say, two minutes before you do the next set, you actually have a higher increased use of fat, or what's called the EPOC effect. So you actually are acutely switching from the use of carbs to the use of fat, and then when you start your next set, you're going back to the use of carbohydrates again. So I think there, there's not many studies that have really looked at this from a metabolic flexibility standpoint, but it kind of makes sense that you are promoting switching of fuels, and over the long term, if we compare like high-intensity training to low-intensity training, the effect from, let's say, a lifting routine and the increase over a 24-hour period use of fat, so over the day, is actually higher than the lower intensity work. Sure. So for me, the first priority I would say is weight training, probably some type of intervals after that, and then I would have some uh, lower intensity work after that. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. And of course, just so we don't allow listeners to take uh, one part of that and run with it, which of course is quite common for people to go, oh, they said strength yeah. training and high intensity interval training and that's all I'm going to do because of course um, what we're saying here is a mixture of all three. Um, yep. Some need to be prioritized and of course it's very common for people to do a bunch of resistance training, a bunch of high intensity interval training to the point that um, they're in, causing problems due to lack of recovery and there's a whole bunch of other issues. So there's oh, all, sure. yeah, there's always a place to pay for cardio and you know for want of a really basic phrase of course basic cardio does teach the body to to burn fats um but of course lots of other exercises do too so a nice mix um mm -hmm. so okay so so we know that the exercising is good and and i think it's fair to say um you, you know you 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 really you, you know we exercise is a good medicine in many ways but when we're talking about metabolic flexibility exercise appears to be an important um, factor here probably because exercise is it's not it's not important because it just burns calories it's important because it restores metabolic flexibility is what i'm hearing you say there um, you obviously can't diet your way out of not exercising um, which is worth remembering um, and you certainly can't exercise your way out of a bad diet so um uh, going back to nutrition then, um, mm -hmm. I guess the one thing we haven't talked about is 
Um, um, yeah, sugars, a big problem. Certain kinds of, of fats, um, bad fats could be a problem. Good fats may potentially help. What about protein? Does protein play a role here? Yeah, I think protein in general tends to be pretty metabolically neutral. Mm. I mean, unless you've seen, you know, some type of, you know, weird adverse reaction. Um, so when I look at someone's nutrition, usually the first thing I do or will standardize is protein amount um, for a couple reasons. Uh, one, helps with recovery from weight training, right, because that's their first um, priority. Um, two, it also helps a lot with satiety. So the more protein you eat, the less uh, other things you tend to eat. And three, it just tends to be handled pretty well by most people. You sure. know, I may have to change a few things. I may have to cut out dairy for people that have, you know, reactions or that type of thing. But in general, the response I get from higher protein is very similarish across wide groups of population, whereas the response to carbohydrates is almost on the other extreme. You know, some people do very well with the you know, almost a ketogenic type diet, super low carbs, very high fat. You know, other people get crazy lean on 400 grams of carbohydrates a day and mm. function well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so protein doesn't seem to have quite as wide variation. Um, so that's usually why I prioritize that first. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it it certainly it's hard not to think. You know, it's it's hard to think of a reason why we shouldn't have. Uh, high levels of protein in our diet you know it's it, there seems to be you know it's not just the satiety or the thermogenic effect it also appears to extend to bone health and various other things yep. of course it, it could well play a role here in metabolic flexibility so um, I've heard you mention fasting um, mm -hmm. in the past so what tell, tell me just briefly why I mean what you know when you're talking about fasting what are you talking about and um, does that have an impact on metabolic flexibility sure um, so that's probably the other area I get lots of very interesting emails from people and I think a lot of it has to do with because there's not a, a, a set definition of intermittent fasting yeah um, so when I talk about intermittent fasting all I'm saying is a period of time where you're not eating or drinking anything that have calories so technically if you're sleeping well at night you're not raiding the fridge on Ambien at 3 in the morning you were fasting for the period of time that you were asleep. It's a normal process. It's nothing to get too bent out of shape about. Um, so what I do with fasting is it's a period of time. You're obviously not consuming any calories, right? So a very easy way to decrease your caloric load. Um, and when you fast, your insulin levels actually drop lower in a healthy individual. Um, they'll reach a bottom where they kind of level out around 18 hours. And what I use it for is if we believe that insulin is a way to push the body to use more fats, so obviously no calories coming in, it's a way to drive sort of the metabolic machinery towards the use of fats as a fuel source. Now, you may not need to go that extreme. You may be able to get there with a lower carbohydrate diet, but we don't really know. And what I do know is that carbs will vary a lot from one person to the next. But I know that a metabolic stimulus where they have nothing coming in is probably the, I don't want to say extreme, but most intense stimulus that I could give them for their body to push them as far as they can to use fats in terms of just dietary type stuff. Um, would that need to be done all the time to get the same effect? Not really sure. So what it looks like in practice is a lot of people usually start like on a Monday or Tuesday 
make sure they're well rested because lack of sleep will screw up all sorts of stuff. And I just tell them just you know push out your breakfast for two hours. So if you normally ate at let's say 8 p.m. at night, normally eat at 8 a.m. So you already did a 12-hour fast. Um, see if you can eat breakfast at 10 a.m. Right. See if you can go till skip breakfast and maybe go to lunch. Right. So once a week, I have people just extend out that period of time because um, a lot of stuff people will be like, oh, I got to do a 24-hour fast tomorrow. Oh, I'm used to eating every three hours when I'm awake. And I've tried that before. It's it's horrible. You will not like it. You will hate it. You will not feel good. Most people can't do that. It's it's too big of a jump. But if you do it about once a week, just put out push out breakfast about two hours. You know, in my experience, the clients, you know, six to eight weeks, I can take someone who eats every two to three hours, and I can have them fast pretty easily for 19 to 24 hours. Um, so I just think it's a way of pushing your metabolism towards the use of fats also. And last thing is it's normally easier for people to do that in my experience than to tell them only you need 300 or 500 calories per day. Yeah, Fasting tends to be much, whether it's the, the mental side of it or, or whatever, it just seems to be easier for people to do. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I'm gonna, I've got a couple of experts coming on to talk about fasting. Oh, nice. And of course it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting one, and uh, again, most people take this stuff out of context. There's, there's times where fasting is good, and there's times when it's not. It depends on oh, your sure. own personal situation, likes and dislikes. But of course, some people do get into this business of, well, you know, what's wrong with just cutting calories? Well, you are cutting calories. You're yeah, just, you are. <laughs> you're, you're just doing it. You know, it's it's you're cutting calories over forty eight hours, and rather than say twenty four hours, it's it's just you know it it's important to remember that you've got to do what's right for for you or for your client and their individual situation and circumstances. And I always teach my students. Oh, yeah. The what we're discussing here is just information that allows you to formulate a set of tools that you keep in your toolbox that you whip out and use in a given scenario. It's not it's not for everyone um, and it certainly isn't applying to everyone because not everyone is metabolically flexible and flexible, but it is a big area um, and what we're suggesting here, like maybe the odd fasting and, you know, it's, it's not necessarily um, that everyone has to do that. But, you know, I, I think what I mean, what I'm going to do, because we I, I think we're going to have to get you on again because we're uh, oh, sure. clearly could talk for yeah, no problem. Um, I particularly want to delve into the whole idea of metabolic efficiency, which I'm going to get Bob Sibaha on. Oh, yeah. But um, and maybe I'll do a dual call with you and him at some point, because I think that would be really oh, cool. that'd be fun. Yeah. So uh, we'll come back to that. So let me just quickly sort of draw some conclusions and sort of do my best to summarize. And then and then I've got a final question for you. So metabolic flexibility is it's the ability of our bodies to switch back and forth uh, between the two major energy substrates, which is basically glucose and fatty acids. And, and, and you know, in a healthy person, that sh you should be able to switch between the two. Um, and in, obviously, inflexibility is where that doesn't happen so well. Um, Metflex, therefore, allows us to control blood sugar after eating, uh, burn fat while fasting, otherwise respond appropriately to changes in energy supply and demand. Um, metabolic flexibility is typically measured by guys like you and me in the lab using uh, metabolic carts where we're looking at things like respiratory exchange ratios um, and, the, and the respiratory quotient um, but that isn't necessarily what 
someone can do in, in, in the real world outside of the lab. Um, metabolic inflexibility um, appears to begin at a cellular level um, of impairment and, um, you know, where there's problems with the ability to increase or diminish fat oxidation. And it's the fat, it's this impaired fat oxidation that contributes towards insulin resistance, as far as I understand it, um, and a consequent inability to increase or diminish glucose oxidation. Um, and current evidence uh, uh, tends to suggest that fat oxidation is, a, is something that occurs at a mitochondrial uh, origin, genetically and even um, can be epigenetically heritable, and is among the causes rather than the consequences um, of obesity and insulin resistance, which I think is an interesting perspective. Um, and it's very important for us to realize, of course, that moderate exercise can actually restore your ability to oxidize fat and that fat loss can restore your ability to absorb and ox oxidize glucose. So I think I've got that right. Um, so, uh, you know, let me just ask you a final question. Um, if you were to give a young um, sports scientist or sports nutritionist or a strength and conditioning coach some advice um, because they want to take their career a bit more seriously because I know you you were a bit like me started out maybe more as a practitioner before you became a researcher I mean what you know what sort of advice would you give to someone who's sort of heading in on that pathway yeah a couple of things um Obviously, I think that doing both practice and research, I think, are both important. That doesn't mean you have to be an elite-level athlete or coach hundreds of people, but I think working with clients, I mean, I'm grateful for all the clients I work with because I know they make me better. They question stuff that I do. They have problems that I have to then go figure out how to try to help resolve. So I know I, I learn a lot from that process, and I learn things that may not necessarily be laid out verbatim in a book, right? I may have to piece, you know, two, three things together. Um, and the other thing, too, is just to to, to question everything that you read, yeah. but not in a, a critical way of, oh, that's wrong. You know, of, okay, if, if that's true, what is sort of the logical conclusion of that? And be very careful about looking at data from, I would say, static models hmm. and also averages, right? So one thing I would love for more researchers, and this would have to come from journals, is that they would publish all their raw data. So not only can you see what's going on, you can see you know, outliers, you can see all those types of things. And at some level, I think the study of those is interesting to provide sort of like an end cap, right? So if you look at um, uh, car races, right? So automobile factors spend millions of dollars, you know, creating race cars because they know that that technology and information will eventually, you know, trickle down to, you know, cars that we have, right? GPS came from, you know, military research, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So I think by looking at sort of those, those outliers, it gives us some good information of what may apply, especially mechanistically, to the rest of the population. And then it's just trying to figure out, well, why... Why did that happen in this person and why did it happen in that person? But first you have to know what actually happened first before you can try to figure out why. Yeah. Um, so I'd say, you know, just try to do some practice on your own, you know, work with clients if you can, and then just think just think critically about the information you're presented and, you know, do your own research and 
you know, try to basically disprove everything you think is right. You know, it's the story of the guy who's looking for all the white swans. He's, like, trying to prove that they're all white. And he goes everywhere all across the world, and he's up to 891 white swans. And, you know, he's entirely convinced that they're all white. You know, and some guy from Mississippi phones him and goes, yeah, there's a black one in my backyard. I goes, oh, crap. You know, this whole theory of that all swans are white is now ruined by some guy in his shorts staring out the back, you know, backyard. Right. So he should have been looking for the black ones. He should have been looking for the white ones. He should have been looking to try to disprove what he actually thought was actually true by looking for data. Yeah. No, brilliant. Brilliant stuff. OK, mate, um, I've it's been great to talk to you about yeah, this. Awesome. Uh, I actually uh, I mean, there's so much more to talk about. We may have to get you back as a regular because I think this is a topic yeah, that sure. no one really gets into. And I think that. Uh, there's more and more, and um, I've also got uh, Brad Schoenfeld and Alan Aragon coming oh, on up in the time. future. Uh, yeah, I know. So uh, yeah, this is going to be the rock star station of, <laughs> of, uh, of sports nutrition. Uh, and of course, I'll have to ask Alan about you know the importance of uh, reading and understanding a paper because of course that's his big oh, thing, isn't it? So, so okay. Well, um, thanks, Mike, and thank you all for listening. It's been a bit longer. I try and keep these podcasts to thirty minutes, but we've managed to <laughs> tend to ramble. Yeah, we've tend to ramble our way to forty-five minutes. But uh, anyway, you'll find all the other podcasts in our we do we do science series. Uh, it's on iTunes under uh, Guru Performance. We do science, uh, but also you'll find links to this and other. Uh, video blogs that I produce on uh, this kind of topic and other practical issues on our website guruperformance.com and of course if you want to take your knowledge to an extra level and um, get to listen to um, uh, the amazing brains of people like Mike then you should have a think about doing the ISSN diploma program that um, that I am the course director for and uh, Mike has actually been filmed recently doing some work for that and we'll have to get him to do some lectures at some point in the future which would be awesome uh so yeah thank you all for listening and take care